Guys, I want to tell you this morning, I'm excited um, because we are in week 20 of our journey through the story. And what that means is we've got this week where we're covering the book of Esther. We've got next week where we're talking about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And guys, then, where did Jesus? Right? Then it's the birth of our king. Um, and that, that's, that's where we're headed. Uh, it has been a long track chronologically walking through the Old Testament. We, we've got to confess that. But I, I hope you have seen the value in it as we put all the pieces together. This morning, I, I want to add another piece. We want, to, we want to build on top of what was done last week so we, we start to understand what happened with the Jews that did not return to rebuild the temple. Okay, So join me in a word of prayer as we study this great book called Esther. Father, we love you, and we pray this morning that you would come in a powerful way and speak to our hearts. Holy Spirit, we want to invite you now to come and to take your place here at our pulpit and to be our teacher and to be our guide, and we pray first and foremost that you would lift up Jesus Christ. Jesus, as you are lifted up, I pray that you would draw us closer to your heart that you would change our hearts, and that we would leave here wanting to be more like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen. Amen. Well, guys, last week we got a glimpse of how God is working in the upper story. He's always working up here. He's always working for good. And God moved the heart of the Persian king named Cyrus to send the Jews home, to, to send the Jews back to Jerusalem, to, to, to tell them to actually go and rebuild their temple. And, and, and he provides them with, with uh, a means to do that, with materials. Uh, he even returns all the items that were stolen from the, from the, from the temple to start with by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And, and so they go home to rebuild. And it was a tough time. It was a tough season. There was lots of resistance. They even completely stopped at one point. And that's when God lovingly sent the prophets to remind them of their need to finish uh, God's house. And, and he provides another king named Darius. And so they eventually do so. And the temple is rebuilt. But you may remember not all of the Jews went back to rebuild. In fact, Ezra chapter 1 verse 5 says this, it says, Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And evidently, the Lord only moved the hearts of about 50,000 people. So what happened to the rest of the Jews that remained, basically, in what we would call captivity, right? They're living in a foreign land. What happened to the rest of the Jews? Well, that's really where the book of Esther picks up. Right? Darius' son, uh, King Xerxes, is now on the throne. And, uh, and, and the story takes place in the capital of Persia, a city known, named Susa. Uh, now, historically, this is how things happen, right? Uh, and I just want to give you context. This is background. So we've got the Bible story we've been studying. This is what's going on historically. So Assyria was a world power. That's who conquered the north. 
right? Then Babylon uh, rises up to power. They conquer Assyria, and, and the Babylonians are one, the one that defeat the southern kingdom of Judah. Then Persia comes to dominance. They defeat Babylon. Now, as we speak, we're, we're here in this season of Persia, but the Greeks are rising up, and soon the Greeks will overtake the Persians. Then eventually the Romans overtake the Greeks, and that's where we find ourselves in the New Testament. That's what's going on in the background. And so... Xerxes is on the throne in Persia, and he is worried about this this new world power that's beginning to rise up, known as Greece. So he has a military planning session of some sort. Uh, I'm on page 274 of the story. If you're in your Bibles, it's Esther chapter 1. And I want you to hear what Xerxes does. It says, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all of the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry and marble and mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits, it means what it means, he was inebriated. When he was in high spirits from the wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Now some scholars uh, are divided on exactly what the demand of Xerxes was on Vashti. There is one rabbinical tradition that says, when, uh, when it says he asked her to show up wearing her crown, there's one rabbi that taught forever, there's a whole rabbinical school that taught, it was only her crown. Now listen, the text doesn't give us details, but what it does do is paint a picture of a king who's asking his queen to show up and be gawked at by a bunch of drunken guys. That, 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 that's the heart of the picture. Now, when Vashti declines in front of all the powerful men, the, the powerful men freak out. They're like, wait a second. All our wives are over there with Vashti. And, and if she can stand up to you, then they can stand up to us. And so what do they do? <laughs> they pass a law. 
All men will be the head of their household according to this law. Vashti will no longer be queen. She'll be stripped of her crown and she uh, will be sent into hiding. Now some people think she was killed. The story picks up a few years later. Historians say what happens in the gap is that Xerxes, after the great planning, actually attacks the Greeks. He has a few wins, but mostly losses. And so he returns home licking his wounds. And that is when his royal attendants propose a great idea. Let's search for a beautiful virgin to be the next queen. Right? Now the girls and their parents didn't have much of a choice. I suppose they could have refused, uh, but if they did, probably um, would have been impaled. That was the way that the Persians dealt with people. That was their capital punishment, favorite form of execution. And this is where we meet Esther. She is an orphaned Jew girl who is adopted by her cousin Mordecai. Mordecai becomes her father figure. She is one of anywhere from, uh, Josephus would say, there were 400 women. Other historians think it may have been almost as many as a thousand virgins that were enrolled in this, let's put quotation marks here, contest to be queen. The girls got one year of beauty treatments and then one night with the king. This isn't The Bachelor. This isn't a blind date. This is what it looks like. Depending on how things go and how much the king enjoys them, how well he is pleased, the texts say. One of four things can happen to these girls. If the, if the king's not pleased with them at all, if it's not a memorable experience, they become a concubine that he will never call on again. If it was a pleasurable experience and he can remember their name, he'll call on them again and uh, they can come for a late night visit. The third option is that if he really likes them, he'll marry them. They'll be a wife and... Uh, her children will actually have a right to uh, an inheritance. And lastly, his favorite would become the queen of all of Persia. Now the rest of the story involves Esther becoming that queen. Uh, her adopted dad Mordecai at, at the city gates overhearing assassination plot which gets foiled thanks to Esther. There's a real bad guy in this story named Haman who rises to power. He's a descendant of King Agag. That's the Amalekites uh, who Saul uh, routed, you may remember, very early on in the story. There's bad blood between these two. When Haman rises to power, he hates Mordecai because Mordecai will not bow down to him. That hate boils over really into how he feels about all of the Jews. He comes up with a scheme to commit genocide. He doesn't tell the king which people group he's going to get rid of, but the king approves. Of course, it's the Jews that he has in mind. After some prodding from Mordecai, Esther will eventually stand up. She'll save her people. Haman will have done to him what, uh, and his family what he had hoped to do to the Jews in a strange reversal of fortunes. Now overall, Esther's just a really strange book. I'm just being honest with you. It is, it is a strange book. In, in fact, there are people uh, throughout church history that would not touch this. Martin Luther would not touch the book of Esther. Wouldn't do it. It's one of two books in the Bible that does not mention the name of God. Uh, it doesn't talk about worship necessarily. Uh, it doesn't talk about prayer necessarily, though there is a mention of fasting. Um, we believe the book is included in the canon. 
largely because of the Feast of Purim, which is established at the end of the book, which is still celebrated. So what do we do with that? (laughs) What lessons do we learn from this kind of life? I've got a few things I want to share with you. I want to be as brief as possible. First and foremost, uh, the first thing that really stood out to me, I I want you to see this morning that focusing on outward appearances deeply affects our relationships with others and with God. Focusing on outward appearances deeply affects our relationships with others and with God. And I don't know about you, but I was just absolutely struck by the opening of the book of Esther, right? The book opens and it's all about King Xerxes flaunting his wealth. He, he, he spends uh, six months, guys, that's how long it takes. He, he's got all of his royal officials, he's got people from all the provinces, he's got all his military people there, and he wants to show them how wealthy he is. So it takes 180 days. That is six months. He's so wealthy, it takes six months to parade his wealth in front of all of these people. And then at the end of the six months, he throws a seven-day seven day party with an open bar. And, and, and I mean, the, the, it, it, it's crazy, right? The couches are made of gold and silver. The people are walking around on mother of pearl for crying out loud. And everybody has their own, I guess, souvenir goblet of gold. They're each one of a kind. Not one matches the other. I searched long and hard this week to think of a word that could encapsulate this. And all I could come up with is that this is an obscene display of wealth. This is an obscene display of wealth, right? And then we're introduced to Vashti. Uh, that's where the story shifts. Now we're introduced to Vashti. Her name in Persia means beautiful or the best. And so the king has now flaunted all of his wealth. He wants to flaunt one more thing. He wants to bring out his bride. And he wants to show them that his queen is the most beautiful woman on the face of the planet. He wants to show her off too. So he orders her to appear wearing her royal crown so that a bunch of his drunk buddies can gaze and lust after her. Later, after Vashti is dethroned, there'll be a beauty contest, as some scholars have put it. That's not true, really. But what's the qualification for the next queen? Evidently, the qualification is that she have a beautiful face and a rocking body. Lie to you not. Here's what the text says in Esther 2.7. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful in, in... The Hebrew, it would say uh, that she had a beautiful shape or form or figure. That, That was the qualification. That was the qualification. Evidently, in Persian culture, the most important thing about a man was his wealth. And the most important thing about a woman was her beauty and sexual attractiveness. Gosh, aren't you glad we don't live back then? Can you imagine that kind of culture? Of course, that's uh, meant to be a pointed remark. Our world, sadly, looks very similar. This morning, I hope we would heed this warning, though. The consequences of only looking on the exterior are tragic. Because Xerxes only sees Vashti uh, from the outside, he thinks nothing about how she might feel to stand before a room of drunken men and be undressed with Ah, their eyes. It ends to ruin in their relationship. 
And as for God, well, let me ask you a question. Why isn't he mentioned in the book of Esther? Do you think it's an omission? Do you think it's an accident? It's like an acceptance speech where the the writer just got kind of nervous and he forgot to thank the most important person in his life. Scholars don't believe that. Now, I, I believe the omission is a result of this, a focus on the external. The Persians weren't the only people prone to focus on outward appearances. We've already learned that the Jews have struggled with this. Remember Saul? And friends, this is a downfall of humanity. We all have the tendency to focus on outward appearances. And because we do so, when we don't see God powerfully moving in our lives, we assume He's not there. Ouch. We're so focused on the external. That when we don't see God moving in powerful ways, we assume He's just not there at all. Which leads to the second thing I want you to see this morning. Just because you don't see God at work doesn't mean He's not there. That's a second lesson the book of Esther teaches us. Just because you don't see God at work doesn't mean He's not there. I love what John Piper says about the book of Esther. He says, God's silence is never absence. His hiddenness is never abandonment. He is working for His promises. And if there's one truth we have learned from studying the Scripture in this format, chronologically, it's that there is an upper story. That God is always working for good. Right? God is always working for good. And even though they missed Him, even though He's not mentioned, even though uh, the writer and the character seem to think that God is absent or that God is silent, we know better. God is at work. He must be because He always is. Just look at the string of coincidences that have to happen in order for the Jews to be saved from genocide. I mean, think of it this way. I mean, it all begins if the king doesn't get drunk... None of this happens, right? So it begins with a king that gets drunk, showing off all his wealth, and he gets drunk at a party with all of his friends. That's where it begins. And then from there, we've got the queen that that remarkably stands up to the king, says, no, I'm not going to have your buddies undress me with their eyes. I'm not going to do that. And so she stands up, and and then there just happens to be an orphan Jewish girl that is the most beautiful in all of the land, right? And, and, and the one that looks over the concubines just happens to be in, in, enraptured by the beauty of Esther and puts her in, in the best place. And, and then you walk through, and then her, her adopted father, Mordecai, just happens to be standing on the outside of the gates when two of the officials publicly begin to plan the assassination of the king. He just happens to be in the right place at the right time. Then there's the king that forgets to thank Mordecai. If he would have thanked him, then the story would have been different. But he, he forgets to thank him. And then there's the sleepless night where the king can't sleep. So he orders for the book of, of, of his life to be brought before him. He begins to read what's been going on in the kingdom. And he, he rediscovers this assassination plot and how it was foiled. And so then he recognizes Mordecai. And all these things on their own go unnoticed. They just seem ordinary. Guess what? That's usually how God works. Orchestrating the ordinary. Weaving it together to be part of His extraordinary 
story. Just because you don't see God at work doesn't mean He's not there. Lesson number three. There is no such thing as coincidence with God. There is no such thing as coincidence with God. God has placed you where you are for such a time as this. We'll be honest with you, most pastors don't preach out of the book of Esther. They avoid it like the plague. But if they do preach out of the book of Esther, they only preach chapter 4, which is this. It's the pinnacle of the story, right? I mean, the pinnacle of the story, Haman devises an evil plot not to just get rid of Mordecai, but to get rid of all of the Jews, a great day of genocide, Mordecai... uh, is wailing. Esther's like, what's wrong? And so he sends word. Haven't you heard? Don't you know what's wrong? Uh, they're they're going to exterminate all of us. And he begins to plead, like, use your position, Esther. You're the queen, Esther. You've got you've to stand up. But, but she initially is like, I, I can't stand up. If I go before the queen, I haven't even seen him in 30 days. If you go before the, queen with, or before the king without him inviting you, you're like, it's death. That is the law. we've seen what happens with that. She's worried about herself. And then Mordecai again. He reminds her, wait, 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 hold on. Don't think that because of your status, don't think because of the crown on your head that you're going to be saved. You too are a Jew. The law is that all Jews will be exterminated. It will end in your death too. You've got to stand up. And then eventually, she is so brave. She goes before the king knowing that it could cost her very life. She stands up on behalf of her people, and she saves all of the Jews. And here's the heart of Mordecai's message to her, right? And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this, right? For such a time as this. And friends, we've got to start viewing our circumstances through this kind of lens as well. Right? Some kind of situation in life, it's difficult. Uh, you're up against it, mind you. And man, this could be your job, this could be your marriage, this could be with your children. And, and you think, why, God, why, why is it like this? And, and, and the answer often is, it's like this so that God can use you right there where you are. With, with the people that are difficult in life. You may, may, maybe it's for such a time as this that God has placed you in that office. Maybe it's for such a time as this that, that God had allowed all those things that you went through as a child. They were for such a time as this in your marriage when you won't let your parents' mistakes repeat. Maybe it's for such a time as this that you had to endure all of that. This may be your time to speak up, to stand up at work in your marriages. So let me ask you a question. Who has God providentially placed in your path? Who has God providentially placed in your path? Long, long time ago in this church, we preached the book of Acts. You guys, some of you weren't here for it. It's been a long time. One of the lessons of that book is that God puts people in our path on purpose. Who has God purposely put in your path for such a time as this? 
Last lesson. Least popular. God makes heroes out of imperfect people. God makes heroes out of imperfect people. In 1993, Charles Barkley made a statement that did not sit well with a lot of people. The media was, uh, they were all over Barkley and Michael Jordan, who would often hang out at casinos and spend tons of money and drink late into the night. And they just thought, how, how could you guys do this? You're role models. And that's when Charles Barkley finally came out. And here's his statement. He said, I'm not a role model. He said, I'm not a role model. He, he, he would argue, I'm a basketball star, but that doesn't mean I should raise your kids or they should look up to me. He said, parents should be role models. And that didn't sit well with a, a lot of people. And, and here's what I fear in our hero-driven culture, which, by the way, completely bleeds into our spiritual lives. If you don't believe me, just look at the megachurches in our world. We tend to take someone that does something heroic. They do something heroic, something brave, something exceptional. And we elevate the entire person instead of the event that was heroic. You see what I'm saying? Somebody does something heroic. They do something great. They, they, they do something that takes courage beyond what we've ever been able to muster up. And instead of elevating the moment of the courage when they rose up and they, they tackled the guy with a gun, or what they did, we elevate the entire person. And when we do that, we start to look to them as a role model, whether you realize it or not. And so what we try to do here, First Baptist, is when we talk about people of the Bible, we try to talk about them in the true context, try to tell the whole story. So yes, Moses was, was the deliverer, right? But he also murdered somebody. He tried to talk his way out of it. We, we can't deny that part of his story. When we talk about David, he, he was the one that slayed the giant. He had a heart. He was the man after God's own heart, right? But when it came to Bathsheba, he, he coveted, he stole, he committed adultery, murder, and he lied to cover it up. Like that's, that's part of his, his story. And, and God used these people to do amazing things. And certain aspects of their lives should be emulated. But we probably shouldn't make them our role models. In all areas. Lest you start gawking at your neighbor while they're taking showers. So listen. I think, this is me, my opinion now. I can give you my opinion. I think we've done a bit of the same with Esther. Okay? Listen, uh, God put her in just the right place for just the right time. And hear me, she was brave. Eventually, she risked her life to save the lives of countless Jews from genocide. And it was a heroic act. It was a heroic act. That act should be emulated. That event, that, the, the gumption it took to take a stand, that should be emulated. We should want to be like that. But she's not necessarily a role model which is how she's been treated by many. And listen, um, this is why pastors don't like to preach this book. I'm just going to be honest. This is why they've run away. 
But, but I think there's beauty in it. And, and I, I want to get to the beauty, because if we can teach the stories of the Bible about great men and women of faith in, in, in truth, if we can preach the whole story, I, 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 think, I think then and only then um, does it take on a very special significance. And I'm, I'm going to get there, okay? And, and so let, let's just walk through this, right? God's not mentioned in this book. Neither is worship, neither is prayer. Esther is selected for her physical attractiveness. That's what's important. Uh, one commentator I read said, don't forget she's not Daniel or Shadrach or Meshach and Abednego, right? They, they, when, when, when presented like, hey, you've got to do this, they said no, and it meant the death penalty. I mean, they tried to kill them, right? I mean, they threw them in a fiery furnace. They threw them in the lines. They actually tried to kill them when they said no. Esther, when, 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 they, when they came to grab her, people were like, well, she didn't have any opportunity. Well, she could have said no. She probably would have been impaled at that moment, Right? That didn't happen, but eventually, hear me, eventually Mordecai, and, by the way, and then Mordecai comes to her, and, and at first she's kind of worried about herself. Wait a second, hold on, I'll get killed. But eventually, hear me, eventually she takes a bold stand. Eventually she, is, she, she at this moment, is the bravest person on the planet. In this moment. That has to be lifted up. In this moment, the stand that she takes is amazing. She risked her life, right? And here's why it's important not to explain away um, the tension and the messiness, right? Because she does evidently go and sleep with a pagan king before marriage <laughs> becomes the queen. Like, like, when we preach the whole story, when we don't avoid the messiness or the tension, we find extremely good news for us. Extremely good news for us. Let me ask you, anybody got a little bit of baggage in your past? Anybody here that's mis- made a mistake or two or, or five in your life? Yeah. Guess what? God can use you to do great things. See, that, 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 that's the, the meaning in, in the book of Esther. That, that's the lesson. The story of Esther is great news for people whose faith seems to fall short of the giants of the Bible. Right? I mean, because you read about Daniel, it says, well, they, they, they couldn't even find anything wrong with Daniel, and so they had to make up a law about his God. And you go, wow, that guy was killing it. You, you read about Joshua. Or the, those, I mean, there, there's certain people in the Bible we read about, and we just think, oh my God. When we read the Bible, we think these guys are heroes. Man, these guys are super. They've got an S on their chest. They're wearing a cape. And we think there is no way that I could ever be like them. There is no way that God could ever use me like that. Look at my past. And then we study the book of Esther. Then we study the life of a guy like Peter. (laughs) And we hear the still small voice of God whispering to our spirit. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you can be used by me. Yes, your life can make a difference. I make heroes out of imperfect people all the time. I wonder... Simply this morning, would you let him make one out of you? Join me in a word of prayer. Father, this morning, um, just want to have a brief time of prayer for any imperfect folks that might be gathered here. God, this morning, my hope is that we would just have some healing 
for some hurts in our past. For some mistakes that the devil has been using as fodder to keep us down. For the lie that we have believed that we have just messed up too much to be used by you to do great things. Oh God, we think that you can use us a little bit. But we don't think we can be great if we're honest. But then we read this book. Then we study this story. And then we see how you have the power to use us in spite of our baggage. God, there will be a moment coming for each of us. Probably several. Some of those moments will seem small. But some of those moments could have eternal consequence. Lord, would you in our spirit right now convince us that you can use us in spite of our past? Please, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.